Hello, and welcome to Roll for Topic, a roundtable discussion about running tabletop role-playing games. Each episode, we randomly pick a topic on our D10 table of topics and discuss it. My name is Chris Salzman. And I'm Andy Rao. And this week, we are joined by special guest, David Fries. Hello. It's good to hey, be here. Hey, welcome on yeah. to the podcast. Thanks. Yeah, so David, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of your history with gaming? I guess, how did you get into tabletop games? And um, yeah, I guess, what are you playing these days? Well, it goes back to the uh, 19th century, actually. Uh, okay. 1975, I guess, or 76, right around the time when uh, Basic Dungeons & Dragons was coming out. And uh, yeah. I was in the seventh grade, and I had a friend of mine who said, we just need to try this new game. His uh, bigger brother had, was trying it, and I said, you know, I'd, I'd love to try it. It only took one time, and for some reason, you know, the whole idea of medieval warfare always just resonated with me. And when I played it one time, I was hooked. Um, mm. Went from the basic... Uh, expert edition and then finally the advanced D came out and i've just kind of been hooked on that ever since so who was in that original party that was playing uh, a friend of mine uh keith uh was part of that and we had another guy greg there was about five of us uh that was playing when we first started i i kind of i don't know why but i ended up being the dm so i just no one else wanted to do it in fact keith and i still play today um we play <laughs> wow. every two uh, so I guess it's like 30 years later or so, but um, we'll play every two weeks on Thursday night. We'll kind of get together, and it's a couple people that I don't know, but uh, they're all over the United States, and we get together and play on uh, Skype. Kind of nice to still get in touch with some of the people that uh, you played with for many years ago. That's fantastic. Do you still, uh, are you still typically the GM? I haven't been the GM for this. Uh, they're actually playing uh, Hackmaster, um, so oh, nice. I'm. I kind of like to to just play a little bit um with my particular game i i do all the 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 gming or what we call the lore mastering and uh so it's kind of nice to be a, a player every now and then get to bother the gm a little bit you're, you're one of the first people i've met who uh who plays hackmaster i've got a copy of that as well and i uh, played it a good bit in the past but uh, not recently do you enjoy playing it or you could take it or leave it uh, it's, it's it's a it's a learning curve i mean there's some aspects of it that uh, i actually don't have the rules i mean so they just said here create the character start playing this so i roll and um typically what we have is kind of a hack and slash kind of a dungeon crawl i like more political intrigue and doing storylines and stuff like that so but most of what we're doing is just kind of sitting around talking to each other i mean we roll the dice uh, they tell me what all is going on as far as the percentages and things like that i i need to learn more about the particular game but it's just hard to learn every rpg that's out there so. yeah <laughs> it's funny i think there's something about being a gm that when you get to be a player you're like i'll just let them handle the rules <laughs> it is very easy to do and i i really enjoy that sometime all the all the pressure is off of me at that time so do you play in any other games i think you mentioned um you're running a game of lore i have lore um that's the, the one i had created um run that usually about once uh every almost once every two weeks as well um we have people from the area that uh I didn't even know played, but uh, they come together. We have about five of us that get together and play lore. It gives me an opportunity to test out the rules, and I'm always constantly uh, changing some things because it's like, ah, oh, that's overpowered, that's underpowered. In fact, I like the the leading of it because the first time I ever played lore as a player, uh, on the first roll, my character died. And I thought, oh. this is this is just unfair. So I changed that rule real quick as to how you can die so easily. It just happened that someone rolled a 20 and someone rolled another 20. And I think it was three 20s in a row, row, in a row that was rolled. And I ended up uh, having a terminal hit against me and I died. I didn't even get to play anymore. That was the first round, first time. It was very sad. So <laughs> That's brutal. Uh, it's it so, terrible. So 
So yeah, you so you mentioned uh, that you've created lore. Do you want to give us a you know the thirty second lowdown on what is a lore role playing game and what were you kind of aiming for? What sort of experience were you aiming for when you decided to create your own game? Sure, lore is a fantasy role playing game, and uh, the idea behind it is after I had played D anD D, played Pathfinder, different editions, and things of that nature. I found that there were some rules that were kind of missing. It seemed to me there was some aspect of the game. So, what I created in lore is uh, it's a it's an RPG that allows you to uh, do basic attacks like pretty much any of the other system will let you do. But it has some a lot of customization. You can do some special type of attacks that you use in counterpoints. So you're able to kind of boost the distance your fireball can go, how much damage it can do, the area of effect. Same thing with martial attacks. Uh, a lot of those things you can customize, but you only get so many points to spend. And mm-hmm. uh, also I customize the uh, the armor. Uh, so there's eight different regions on the body. So you can have uh, leather pads and chainmail pads on your shoulders. You can have a certain kind of helmet. So you can completely customize your armor. It even has a crafting system. There's a lot of different things you can do. You can do counter spells. But I, I tried to make sure that the, the rules were very simple to get into. In fact, it's a right now it's about 420 pages long. But most <laughs> of that is it's all background information. You read oh. eight pages and you know how to play the game. Um, oh, that's great. In fact, you if you could jump in the game within three minutes and play it. I've had a chance to run it several years since 2009 at uh, Gen Con, and everyone who sits down, I mean, whether they're a seasoned gamer or they're brand new to it, they take to it very quickly, and they've enjoyed it. It's been fun to do. I could have either watched TV for the last three years, or I could have <laughs> kind of done the bucket list and wrote an RPG, so I was able to write the RPG. Yeah. So. You know, I, it's really impressive that you have produced lore you know, to the uh, extent that you have. I think well, most game masters, in my experience, you know, do have at some point in their game mastering life that bug to make a system. But not too many people go all the way across the finish line on it. So, uh, yeah, so nice work. And part of my motivation was I wanted to do some writing. I thought, well, I don't really know the world, so I thought I have to create the world, and now I don't know all the different vocations. So the rule system that I created, all the 450 pages with the races and the, the different skill sets and all that, was kind of a backdrop for me just to write the novel. Um, mm. I just need to get around to writing the novel now. I haven't right, started. Yeah. I'm so tired. And I don't know if I'll ever <laughs> yeah. write it. But if I do, it's ready to go. So all my background material is done. That's a, yeah, that's a heck of a setting Bible uh, that you've got there. So within the rule book then, are, are there are there short stories about you know people in that world? Like as, how much of the setting have you fleshed out? I've actually, I created the rules to be completely a world agnostic. So you, except for the religious system, I mean, we have... Uh, we have eight different houses that uh, are part of the religious system, and they have a little bit of a background, but it could be set into any world. Uh, mm-hmm. Other than that, people can apply the rule system. I mean, I think they probably can apply it to Pathfinder and D&D if they wanted to, kind of an alternate kind of homebrew rules. I really tried to make it as uh, world agnostic as possible. I'm now creating what's called a legendarium. That is all the background of a world, and the world is called Candlewood. So if people wanted to use that, uh, they could. But it's it's completely it's, it's an election if they want to do that. You've mentioned that uh, you've spent a lot of time at conventions running running games, a lot of lore, and I remember from some previous discussions with you that you've run some Pathfinder and other stuff at conventions. You do you enjoy that? Do you get a kick out of running uh, at conventions? Oh, I do. I, mean, I just love I love sitting down at a table. I mean, one of the one of the ideas that people have about people who are gamers are like they're kind of antisocial. But if you sit down at a table to, at a at a con, you find that you know here's people that have come from sometimes all over the world, but at least all of the United States, and within five minutes they're trying to solve a problem that you've given to them, 
and they're working together and they've a lot of times they never met them uh, anyone else at the table so uh, it's just a wonderful experience also i love the challenge that i can run the same quest with three different groups and it always ends up different um the things that they throw at me are things it's like i never would have thought about someone doing that it keeps me on my toes and i like to i kind of like to do it loosely if you're doing a if you're if you're gaming something to really let the story let the people kind of um, do what they want to do. What cons uh, are on your radar in the next in the next six months or so? I'm hoping to go to Origins, possibly go to uh, Dragon Con in Atlanta. Uh, Origins, I think, is in Cleveland or Cincinnati. I'm not sure which one that is. There, it starts with a C in June. And but the big one is always Gen Con. I love going down there, and I've had a chance to go every year since 2009. Uh, which is kind of when I started. I was I ran lore, but I also ran um, Pathfinder. It's interesting to watch the evolution of that. There were like 200 people that were in the room. Now there's you know 3,000 people. It's it's amazing how it's grown. In the Pathfinder room, you mean? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's a massive. They had a small little presence on the side. No, there wasn't that many people there. But uh, now it's just it's all encompassing. Well, we should uh, dive into kind of our, our main topic. Yeah, you bet. If you are familiar with the show, you know that in each episode, we randomly determine the topic that we will be discussing. And we do that by asking our guest to roll a D10, which uh, hopefully David has brought, and I think he has. So David, do you have a D10 handy? And uh, is this a special D10 with a little bit of history that you want to share with us? Well, I was looking in my drawer. I actually found one that was from the uh, expert rules that goes back to about, I guess, 1982 or so. And uh, so this one's a, this is an old dice, but um, I can still see the numbers on it. Rounded off quite a bit, but I can still see yeah. the numbers. Is it uh, is it an inked die? No, this is it's, it's not inked. Uh, this one uh, I didn't have to do that. I, I had a set that was inked way back then. They didn't turn out very well, so I decided just to go with the ones that are printed on easy to see navy blue with white numbers. Okay, well, go ahead and give us a D10 roll, no modifiers. Okay, two. All right, uh, the topic that your die roll has determined, we will be discussing is how do you determine the power level of your game? Mm. Are your players normal people or demigods? And how do you handle player disagreements about this? This topic was added way back in the fifth episode of this podcast by our guest, Mark French. So, Chris, let's. Uh, do you remember this conversation with Mark? And do you mm. remember any context he added to this question? Yes, I do remember this because this one really struck me as a, a, a good question. So he was... He was particularly talking to think in terms of rifts, which is a system I'm not super familiar with, but right, it sounded like there was sort of like normal damage and then like super damage or mega damage, <laughs> something like that. The question sort of came out of uh, that discussion, I think. And it was, yeah, how do you determine sort of like how hard a punch is going to hit um, in your game, right? So if your characters are heroes, that's great. When they swing the sword, is like, you know, do they rip heaven in half or do they just like chop an apple in half? <laughs> the other point to that is, right, is yeah, how do you handle the players sort of disagreeing? Like, oh no, like my guy can jump 50 feet, you know, when someone wants like something a little bit more real than that mm -hmm. this could also this could also be referring a bit to just the general power scale of your game or your setting you know a DD &D can scale from you know hard scrabbling scoundrels up to demigods uh you know and what's the sweet spot why don't we start with a general question and that is what is the power level what's the scale of the games you guys are either running right now or that you most typically run 
Yeah, um, so I'm playing D&D right now. I think the the way that I've sort of determined it is just, you know, based on sort of the rules of D&D, right? So D&D, I think, like, as you progress in the the level system, it kind of gives you a some markers about, like, the sorts of enemies that you should be able to take down and fight, things like that. So you start at level one and you're just facing goblins, and by the time you're level 20, it's like you are facing gods. Like, that's sort of the, the progression that they they want you to take. And I think there's a lot of reasons just to stick with that if you're going to play D&D. Yeah, so I've played other games, right, where the power level's a, a lot um, lessened, right, because like, maybe you're just, like, totally normal human beings, so, you know, walking across the room might be dangerous. <laughs> that, that sort of thing. In mine, um, I guess I'm playing lore, but I I do play D&D some as well, uh, edition i know a lot of the rule systems will kind of set people more as heroes uh, that mm-hmm. idea that you kind of start out as a hero uh, what i typically typically try to do is is let people start out really as normal human beings i mean you're mm-hmm. if you're starting out as a fighter you haven't really fought i mean you're you're brand new to this um so at least within lore and some of the other games i've been you kind of measure that by you have less life points or less hit points uh, you're mm-hmm. easier to hit your armor class. You don't have as much money to spend on. Not everyone's wearing chainmail uh, or something mm-hmm. like that. So, uh, especially if you're a wizard, you're just you're you really are kind of squishy. You can do some stuff, but as you advance and as you grow, uh, you know you you get you get tougher. You're able to hit more. I mean, your attack bonuses go up. I, I just kind of you know let people start out as regular humans and say, okay, we're 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 kind of moving from here. One of the things that I, I have done is is I, I've created creatures that are levelable. You may encounter a goblin that's first level, but just like a fighter can increase a, you know, a goblin can increase to 20th level. I mean, they have hmm. the ability to do some of the same combat. So uh, I've kind of let the players know, you know, you if you meet a goblin, it doesn't mean that it's first level. It, it could be fifth level, and if you're fourth, you need to watch out. So, but I try to I try to gauge it a lot on, you know, just the people I'm playing with. I know some people... They want to make sure, do you have rations uh, if you're going out? I usually don't try and track that because it just seems to me it's, it's, it's a lot <laughs> yeah. of hassle. Uh, get some way of the story. But some people, they like that. So I, I kind of play the, the uh, their abilities and what they have to do kind of based on what they're looking for. I don't play with like encumbrance rules at all. And I've had players sort of abuse that. <laughs> and, you know, just kind of hits the point where they're like, well, how many how many swords are in the room? Like, I don't care. Like, you can, <laughs> you can have all the swords if you want. Like, no one's going <laughs> to... I'll tell you right now, no one's going to buy them. Now, if I'm at a con, I usually give a lot of stuff away like that. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I will say you get all, you know, it's a plus 18 uh, staff of, of hitting or smiting or lightning bolt or something. It's like you never get to use it again in my game. But uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> I would love one day to see some sort of official quiz or <laughs> some sort of semi-official quiz and get some data on what rules most GMs just simply drop or ignore. Like, and I, <laughs> I think things like encumbrance would be way up there. I know I've encountered so few GMs that really get into encumbrance and I, I don't know bagging on people that do the encumbrance thing. That's, that's all good. It's a style of play. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, just, it, it's a yeah. style thing. Encumbrance, uh, things like, you know, food and exhaustion yeah. and disease and stuff like that. I, I've had a GM one time that even monitored how often you went to the bathroom. Oh my oh, When did your character go to the bathroom? And I'm thinking, who cares? But yeah. for him, that was very, very important. I thought, I didn't stay in that group very long. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's one of those, uh, you're at a con game and the GM starts talking about your bathroom schedule and you're like, yeah, I'm going to go up and get a drink and just uh, never come back. Uh, it would be a terrible <laughs> game, a terrible game to be in. You only got two hours or four hours of play. And if you're going to worry about that kind of stuff, it's not going to yeah. be a good experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what about you, Andy? What do you how do you do this? Uh yeah, usually usually my default 
is the kind of D&D standard expectations. Right now I'm playing in a game of the One Ring, or I'm running a game of the One Ring, which is a Tolkien-based role-playing game. And it is a little different for me because uh, the characters are starting out as, you know, level one schmucks, the way they do in D&D. However, the clear intent of the system is that they become movers and shakers, not necessarily in a mechanically powerful way, but the clear intent is that over the course of a campaign, your characters really uh, influence and shape and shape the area that they're adventuring in, including, you know, like they get involved in local politics and they become mm. uh, revered local heroes. I have been giving some thought, it's, since it's not a game where you really level up and your numbers get a lot bigger, I have to convey that rise in power level of the players by giving them, I guess, more influence in the areas where they're operating. And that's been kind of interesting for me. It's different. I'm I'm really used to the, you all start at level one and you kind of, through hard work and perseverance, you, you know, pull yourself up into the mid-levels and mm-hmm. eventually you become kind of a heavy hitter simply because you know more magic than anybody else on the continent. But um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so uh, I guess... I am in slightly unexplored territory for me as a GM at the moment. That's kind of interesting. I'm thinking about like, did Frodo level up, you know, as he was carrying the ring? Like it's it's sort of an odd concept. If you think about the the story of the Lord of the Rings, (laughs) it is. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you know, because Frodo does level up, um, in the sense that he becomes more mature, he becomes a figure worthy of, you know, he earns the respect of his peers. And by the end of the Lord of the Rings, you know, he is this really grown into his heroic role. Um, And it's a far cry from where he started way back at the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring. But that's certainly not in the sense that he now has a plus 35 sword attack, right? (laughs) Yes. It, uh, this reminds me a little bit uh, that the Lord of the Ring, the history of Lord of the Rings role-playing games actually struggles with the question of power level because the key question when making really any licensed role-playing game, but Lord of the Rings is a particularly good example is, you know, what, what power level are the players are Mm -hmm. in a Lord. When you sit down to make a Lord of the Rings game or a star Wars game or whatever, are your characters, you know, equal in influence and power and ability to the heroes of that movie or book, you know, are they Aragorn or are they random dude in the tavern you know, with seven hit points, uh, yeah. you know, just operating on the fringes uh, and staying well outside the zone of the big heroes of the setting, you know, and the different Middle Earth role playing games over the years have taken different have landed in different spots in answering that question. But the the earliest one did it tried to level out all the different characters from uh, the Lord of the Rings. And it creates some wonky questions because, you know, is <laughs> is uh, Frodo, you know, a 17th level rogue is he you know is, is gandalf a 55th level wizard with a little bit of cleric thrown in you know um but yeah have have you guys ever played or run a game that doesn't follow that uh zero to hero D style progression i've played lord of the rings uh i had a chance to play that one of the last cons i was at and it is a very different type of of game one when i'm running a game i generally will give i'll generally give my uh, people renown points trying to measure that with the people that they're fighting. So uh, if they do good things, they get positive renown. If they do bad things, they get negative renown. And that, in addition to kind of your level, shows your influence in the area. You know, people that have like a minus 500 renown, they're pretty much scoundrels. People will 
kind of get out of their way. I mean, they're considered people that will cut your throat. But if you have a positive 500, you may also get free food at the tavern or sometimes you get more information. So level is not everything. Your your reputation, you're building a positive or negative reputation, and uh, that that can affect your the character play. Dave, you mentioned earlier that you liked games that focused on stuff like political intrigue. And I'm just curious if you've ever run or if you've thought about running a game where the players are like the political movers and shakers in the world. They're not uh, rough and tumble adventurers, but they're the princes, the nobles, the merchants in the court. Have you ever uh, done something on that scale? I have created uh, in the world that I'm, I'm, I'm working right now with that idea of politics. I'm kind of waiting for the characters to get a little bit higher up. Um, so they start with a region, a town, usually something kind of small. Uh, even in, in the town of Covenant that I, I created, it's a large town of maybe 10,000 people. So this has that structure of being lords, ladies uh, uh, in the political system. I'm trying to move their players to be able actually to experience some of those those things. Um, some of them have developed you know, their own tavern. Uh, they say, hey, I've got some money. I want to develop a tavern. They can make money. And that can give them some influence. And you know, they're, they're encountering other different political factions that are coming in. So that kind of draws them into some of that stuff. But I do like that idea of, you know, it's not just you start from zero to go to hero, but some of these other little, the storyline I think is, is, is tremendous. If you can add a storyline to something, uh, we, I had one game one time where we never rolled dice for four hours. The entire yeah. night was just political intrigue. I mean, people were movers and shakers and trying to get things done and everyone had a blast. Do you find, is it hard then to resolve conflict then when you don't really have sort of a mechanical, like, oh, you have plus three to backdoor dealings or something like that? I mean, I know like in lore we have streetwise and we have, you know, diplomacy and most of the games have those types of uh, skills. So I let people use them, uh, maybe their intellect or their appeal or something like that. You got your charisma and other different um, game systems, but... If people are trying to do something, I usually will let them roll the dice. Um, I find that a lot of people, they really enjoy rolling dice. They don't want just someone to tell them what's happening, but it's like I want to somehow roll this D20 that's in front of me as much as I can. Yeah. Uh, so I set up things, whether it's combating people, when people are in a bar and you're going to have a bar fight, I let them go ahead and they do their damage, but... I do something a little different, kind of like, uh, well, they have what I call non-lethal damage. So once you've reached your full life points or hit points, a person has, has beat you up, you're basically incapacitated. Those types of things have, have helped to, to add some of that political intrigue. And, I mean, there's always the person who says, I'm going to kill the other player. And I think, yeah. well, you know, you can if you want to, but we're going to roll initiative. And if you want to destroy each other... You, you technically have that right. Um, I, I give them freedom as much as they want. I try not to let my story overshadow their plane. I give them a nuts and bolts kind of, here's an outline. You have to fill in the rest of the story. And um, mm -hmm. I've been in games where I had one guy, he, he said, I'm in the middle of a town. And I was walking forward and he said, a wolf jumps out. And I said, is there any grass? He says, no, it's just, it's level. I said, I didn't <laughs> see that. Uh, a, a wolf that's 10 feet in front of me? He said, no. I said, but can I at least check? He said, sure. I rolled a 20. He said, you still didn't yeah. see it. I said, yeah. it's automatic. I mean, but yeah. his story <laughs> was more important than my decisions. And I thought, yeah. you know, we're kind of like, we're seconds here. And I didn't like that. I thought that's that's not a good way to play. 
the GM power level can be a, a totally different topic. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Level. <laughs> but when you allow that political intrigue, you have to be able to really go with it because the story can go all over the place. There's so many directions that I want to go here. And if you haven't planned for it, it's a lot of, it's a lot of just, just by your wits of saying, let me, let me answer what comes up. And you have to really kind of, it, it's a dangerous thing. It'd be a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing. A couple, it was maybe a decade ago or even more. I was the first time I was really shaken out for the first time of the assumption that if I was playing fantasy, I was playing in this, you know, D&D style zero to hero thing. And I ran and played in some games of Exalted. Are you guys familiar with that? No. It no. was, um, it was a White Wolf game. It was uh, quite popular. It was a quite big deal when it came out around the turn of the century, and it's had a couple of editions since then. But it was, in a sense, a sort of reaction to D&D, and its basic premise was uh, that you are characters in a fantasy world, but you aren't the level one dude with seven hit points. You are demigods who uh, you're... There's only a small number of things in this whole world that are as powerful as you, and you're going to just, you're going to wreck or save or totally rework the whole setting just by virtue of who you are. So the whole game was skewed to this power level of you're not fighting like a, a band of goblins, you're, you know, you're fighting an army of goblins. I had a lot of fun with it at the time. It was fun to indulge in that. I'm, you know, these days I'm back down in kind of the more D and D standard D and D approach. It's a good exercise if if you've been running games in the you start you know as a first level uh, wimpy character and you slowly get better. If you've been running that forever, uh, you know there's a number of games out there that that just let you toy with having the player start out as the the really big heavy hitters. Um, mm. And it's a nice change <laughs> of pace. Yeah. Would you do um, in that game in Exalted? Would you like? I don't know, like, would you be battling other demigods and stuff? Or really, would it be like you're you're taking an entire army of goblins? Uh, the intent is that you are pretty quickly interacting with or fighting the other heavy hitters of the setting. The game really doesn't want you to, to bog down too much in, in the lower level stuff. It, what I found running it is that at that power level, it introduces this whole new challenge to running a game, which is that... When players are empowered at that level, you lose a lot of your game master ability to kind of constrain and predict what they're going to do. You know, if they're a demigod and they can fly across the continent and uh, and attack the emperor or start a trade war, you know, if they have the ability to do that, um, in a normal D&D game, you can put a lot of really easy constraints on players because they're not that powerful. But uh, the more powerful they get, and this isn't true in D and D too. I find D and D in like the starting at about level fifteen, I find it gets really challenging to GM because the power level is such that players players are really unpredictable in what they can do. You just really need to be on your toes as GM. Yeah, I think there's also a problem. I think in the game, like yeah, it's like what is even their problem then yeah. at that, that point? Like why are they dealing with it and not you know the other local hero? in town you know so you yeah it does have to i think you just have to keep on ratcheting up like what you're dealing with and then all of a sudden you have interplanar conflict which is cool right like yeah, yeah exactly what you're saying but it's very much it's very different from where we're going in the goblin cave and what i find with D D type games is that as the players level as they become more powerful it pays to you know adjust the type of challenge they're facing i mean you can have them at level 18 fighting the 18th level version of your 
you know, of what they were fighting at level one or two. But mm-hmm. with their powers and stuff, um, you know, they, there's you can throw them different types of challenges, you know. Um, if you still want to be cruising through dungeons, killing stuff and taking their killing things and taking their stuff at level 18, that's awesome. But, mm-hmm. you know, players at that level, they can be breaking kingdoms or setting up their own kingdoms if they want. Yeah, it's a challenge, though. Um, this makes me think, have, have either of you guys run a, a superhero role-playing game? I ask because that's a type of role-playing game where you have to kind of decide right up front, like, are we playing Superman heroes or are we playing, you know, um, somebody much lower on the <laughs> on the, the scale? Were you, you going to say Batman? You were going to say I, Batman. Oh, yeah. I mean, Batman, <laughs> yeah. Batman sucks. Uh, no, <laughs> Batman doesn't suck. But, uh, yeah, uh, have, you, have you guys played or run in superhero games or other games where you had to decide up front, like, okay, where are we going to be on the spectrum? I personally have not uh, done any of the superhero games. And, and I do that on purpose because... It's that high end uh, part of the game that I I don't really like myself. I love the I, I mean for me I love the first levels. Um, yeah. I think and I think part of part of DMing is is about balance. You have to always help the. I try not to keep my players at level one very long. Usually within the first they t- whenever they do their first adventure they're they're always automatically going to be level two. I just make sure that happens and I let them progress until they get to about level eight. Uh, to 10 and then things kind of slow down a little bit more because you're you're having to 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 really develop your character but i think even the adventures you bring them on can significantly kind of hamstring them becoming all powerful but it gives them you know here's a lot of that uh the quest that you did on this week it may what you find may work with something that you do in, in a month from now uh, and you're always having to to think how are all these different quests and and societies I'm meeting and and people and prophecies all these things that you're kind of interweaving into the story where is all that going uh, and sometimes you have to have a a real big picture before you you start uh, leading them on a quest or at least be a couple steps ahead of them. I think even magic items how many what kind of magic items you give to your players that that can determine whether they or become all powerful. Uh, but as a DM, I always try to think, you know, I can always, I never let them get become godlike. Uh, so I guess that's why the superhero never really a, a, appealed to me. Cause I think uh, if you can destroy, you know, buildings and all this kind of stuff, it, it kind of loses the fun for me. I know for some yeah. people, they love that, but, uh, I like kind of getting there. I'm totally with you. The, uh, I've, I've often thought about this, but my, my sweet spot for running D and D type games is, levels like six to 12 because Mm -hmm. in that level range you the players are capable and they have a pretty versatile array of spells abilities um Mm. and they're no longer at risk of you know uh they're no longer at risk of freak accidents you know you know or a, (laughs) a, a, a a goblin with a really good role, you know, taking them down. But like, as you say, Dave, they're not so powerful that they introduce that whole new set of questions, which is like, how do I, how do I challenge a group of demigod level characters mm-hmm. here? How about you, Chris? Do you have kind of a sweet spot uh, when you run D and D that you kind of linger in? You know, I, was, I was thinking about this as you were talking and I don't really play tabletop games for like the, the power fantasy part of it, I guess. I guess, like, if, if there is a power fantasy, it's sort of like the, the overcoming the odds sort of power fantasy, not the, like, I, I punched so hard you went through all the buildings mm-hmm. um, power fantasy. Yeah, so for me, like, I actually really enjoy those kind of first couple levels where you have to be a, a bit more strategic. That said, like, the, my D&D game, they've, they're all at level five or so now, and I'm finding it very 
interesting. I'll, I'll use the word interesting to prepare <laughs> combat encounters <laughs> for them just because it's like, they just have so many options. Um, right. And then like, you know, like I forgot that the fighter can now, you know, takes two attacks every turn and, you know, like the wizard has a familiar, like, you know, all this, all this sort of stuff. Um, you know, so like D and D for me then kind of becomes a more of like a, I'm going to flip through the monster manual and just, you know, like pick out the right challenge rating and just like see what you do with yeah. it, which that can be kind of fun too, from, from a GM's perspective. Um, right. You're less sort of guiding them and more sort of like just presenting challenges and seeing, seeing what, what comes of it. Have either of you guys ever had to do a course correction where you let, maybe by giving out magic items or through some other contrivance, you found that the player power level was above where you wanted it to be and you were struggling to challenge them in the way you wanted? Like, did you give them a plus five sword when they were level two and it caused all sorts of chaos? <laughs> no, uh, so I, I came to GMing late, like as an adult, right? So I did, I, I've learned from everybody's teenage experience where they, they have those stories and I have managed to avoid that yeah. <laughs> as much as possible. Yeah. Um, maybe to my detriment, right? Because like I, I have ideas for cool magical weapons. I'm just like, well, I can't give them that because they'll break it in some way. How about you, Dave? Have you ever had to course correct? Oh, yes. Yeah, I've, I've done that a couple times. Gave one one uh, particular individual, they were fighting this particular type of a magical lizard, and they decided it was such a, it was a very difficult battle, and they decided we're just going to skin it and use it for armor because it had such a high armor rating, and it went <laughs> completely unbalanced. Um, so I, I had to course correct that by, you know, he eventually lost that armor, um, <laughs> or at least it got tattered. I've had sometimes, you know, people have too powerful of a of something, a particular axe or a bow or something, and uh, you know, sometimes things get stolen. Um, it just it just happens. <laughs> yeah, but, it's a shame, uh, shame that it gets stolen. But yeah, I mean, I think you're always you're always working with that. I mean, you're you're always gauging the table to find out where people are, and it's not only in the long run as far as how powerful they are. If they are too powerful, how do you adjust that? But even at the table, are are they doing? Is this a really a cakewalk for them? Yeah. Um, I've completely redesigned the monsters to say, you know, all of a sudden they're they're hitting really hard and uh, doing a lot of damage, and I kind of keep up where the the players are. But you, mm -hmm. you, there's that macro and that micro adjustments that you have to make all the time. That's a really interesting point, Dave. Do you guys, uh, when you run games and especially kind of combat encounter type situations, do you feel an obligation to give the players uh, give the players a challenge equal to their abilities if you see that they are plowing through the opposition do you think to yourself well they deserve they deserve it i'm going to let them keep doing this even though these combats are not all exciting or do you say ah, i really need to like bump up these encounters and do you on the fly ramp up the challenge to meet them how much how much on the fly like tweaking do you do like that um, I'm starting to do more. I, I I do like to adjust things as it's going. Just simple stuff like all of a sudden something will have 20 more hit points or or, or something like that. Just because it's like it's going to go down next round unless unless I do something. Are yeah. you doing that because you think it won't be fun if it doesn't have another 20 hit points? Like what's going through your mind when you are like you know I'm going to just have this guy's hit points be doubled. Well, that's a deep and probing question. I um, know. Uh, I'm yeah. putting you on the spot, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, yeah, so I mean, fun, fun is a very subjective thing, but I think it, it is not fun. Um, I'm sure we've talked about this a bunch on the podcast. It's not fun to me when you hit the point 
in a in a battle where you're sort of just doing what you did the last time to win. So if that the last time to win, if all you did was just everybody did their attack, you know, you kind of like circled around the enemy and did your attacks until they they went down. Like then something's wrong, right? So you got to kind of break out of that that rut. That's fun in video games. It's not fun in tabletop games to me. So that's that's why I would adjust and fudge and maybe try to throw throw another enemy in there to make it so like they get to use their cool powers and not just rely on attacking every turn. Yeah, I've I've done the same thing, especially like at conventions. I mean. Of course, if you're going to demo your game at a convention, you don't want your players to die. It's a negative experience. Yeah. No one ever dies at my table, and there's a reason for that. But uh, I, even in my own personal games, I'm constantly trying, I guess because I see myself as the storyteller, and I want people to have fun. Uh, but I don't want them just to sit there and say, hey, I can just kill anything. There has to be a little bit of fear that says, I went down, you know, I only got like a couple hit points left, uh, or life points, and... There's some fear in there. It, it kind of energizes them, I think. So mm-hmm. I've actually just, the, the life points or the hit points of a creature really don't mean anything to me. Uh, I'm gauging how many rounds have we gone through? Are people having a good time? You're, you're constantly always monitoring where people are around the table. I'll find a person that they're not rolling at all very good for the night. They're always rolling two and three and one. They're getting beat up and, I'll sometimes, you know, make something happen uh, that they can actually have fun. Uh, and I'll do the same thing to the person who's rolling 20s all night. And they get a little cocky, and it's like, okay, we need to kind of bring you down a couple notches. But, <laughs> you know, I, I've been known to introduce uh, brand-new monsters in Encounter. They had no idea where they were coming from. And it's just like, okay, let's make it a little bit harder. But I've also been able to say, you beat on this monster enough. I'm going to let it die now. and Because uh, you can tell when people are they're kind of getting bored. And, yeah. and you just want to say, okay, the, the counter's over. We need to move the next part of the story. So there's always that judgment. You're always trying to monitor mm-hmm. what's going on. I, I feel that so much of successfully running a game is, is circling around that question of, like, what is, what is really fun here? You know, is it the challenge? Is it the strategy? Is it, is it more fun if they're, you know, down to their last couple hit points and the tension is high? Is it more fun that they're getting to use their awesome powers and just wipe the floor with these uh, opponents, you know, and it's different for every group. And uh, I don't know. I, one day, uh, one day I'll get, I'll figure out the answer to that question. But until then I feel like, you know, you have to just do be prepared to do a lot of uh, quick adjustments on the fly. And I think it's all of them. I mean, you're, you're, you're constantly letting them show their powers and they're epic. Uh, you're also getting some tension. And I think within the concept of a, or the, the context of a two hour game, you can have those highs and lows, but a lot of it is just, how are the people interacting with each other? Are they laughing? Are they enjoying themselves? And that's, that's part of the entertainment. Uh, and I know some, some GMs will say that's not at all what the game's about. You've got to be very, you got to know when the person goes to the bathroom and did they eat this morning and how many calorie counts do they have? But, um, I see a bigger picture. Uh, I just think, you know, people enjoy getting together and playing. Yeah. You know, uh, Dave, you mentioned earlier, you were talking, you mentioned the idea of the characters losing something overpowered that they had acquired. And it made me laugh. Um, it, it made me think of a, a power de- destabilizing element that has cropped up into my games from time to time. And that is when players get too wealthy. Do you guys uh, ever have this <laughs> yes. problem? I was playing in a game a couple of years ago and it's just so easy as the game master, you know, to let the players accumulate too much wealth. Uh, and there's ver- various, reasons why it's easy to fall into that trap (laughs) but you know uh, you can quickly reach a point where the characters are 
have a lot of power because they have a lot of wealth and influence. And I remember uh, a GM of a game I was playing in took me aside in between sessions and he's like, you know, you guys got all that treasure a couple of sessions ago and I'm really starting to regret it because we had started doing things like purchasing whole sailing vessels and things like that that really were throwing the power curve of the game out of whack. And he was like, you know, so I want you to have a last party with this money at the next next session because you're going to you're going to lose it through a contrived uh, <laughs> thing in about one episode, in about one uh, adventure. So just brace yourself. And that kind of made me laugh. And I, I appreciated the bluntness of him just saying, hey, I uh, I gave you something, a toy that is um, taking some of the fun of the game away from me, the GM. So let's try to get this back balanced. I don't I don't like that. You know, it's pretty cheesy to, to steal the player's stuff or just to take it away. But sometimes you got to do it. That's where taxes come in. If they have a lot of money, <laughs> you know, taxes come down on people and it's like, ah, you got to pay the tax. Yeah. Some king's going to ask why. How did they get all those gold pieces? <laughs> that's that's a you know, that is I would love a game that uh, actually went down that direction. Uh, you know, um, mm-hmm. How, what do you do with these rogue adventurers running around with the wealth of a small nation, uh, you know, in the form of magic items? Um, of course, your IRS has to be able to deal with like an angry party of 12th level, you know, <laughs> like marauders, basically. Uh, but uh, all right. You guys have any uh, final thoughts on the topic of um, kind of managing the power level in games? Yeah, I do. So so one way that I've kind of played with the power level, and this is something I've only done once, I, I kind of want to explore it again, was... I was running a session and the, the players had just reached level three, which in D&D you get, get a bunch of your class stuff at level three. Uh, and so the wizard, the first time that he cast one of his new spells, I had it like you get cast at like, like a fifth level spell, right? Like, so it was just you know, way too powerful. Like there's no way that he could have really been capable of doing this. We had a really fun like role playing moment. Like, Hey, you've just discovered sort of this new thing that you can do. And it just like, you know, blasted the whole forest apart. You know, it's like, it's not going to happen again <laughs> for, for, you know, a long time, but right. You can kind of see like, this is, this is where you're headed. Um, if you continue down this path. Yeah, that's interesting. So he, he had to find a way more to like bring that power under his control. Yeah. It was like, not exactly like a wild surge or wild magic. Um, but yeah, it was just sort of like the, the first time he cast, I think it was thunder wave. Right. And which is only supposed to be a 15 by 15 foot cube or something like that, yeah. you know, but instead it, yeah, it blasted like a hundred feet in every direction, you know? So it was like really fun. Cause it's like, well, yeah, you did just learn this cool thing. And like, maybe you don't understand it. And like, maybe it's like, yeah, coming from something you don't, you don't, you don't quite get. But yeah, so I mean like that, right, mechanically in the game, it happened in a section that didn't really matter, right? It wasn't like he used this against a, a boss and destroyed the boss in one hit. Yeah. Something like that. It was just like, yeah, in the forest, taking down a goblin. Yeah, so like I think playing with that as the GM, you can do some interesting things too with, with I guess, where you show that power level spiking. You know, I'm reminded of uh, not a role-playing game, but the Metroid video games. Mm-hmm. Are you guys familiar with those? Chris, I know you're familiar with those. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the, one of the conceits of Metroid is that in at least the Metroid Prime games, uh, you often start with all of the power-ups or a lot of the powers that you will acquire in the course of the game. Like in Metroid Prime 1, I, this is, mm-hmm. this is a while ago. I'm, I'm going to get details wrong, but you start with like most of the power-ups, right? And then, you have this short like tutorial session where you get to enjoy and see how awesome it is going to be to have all of these power-ups. And then the game 
through a plot contrivance takes all those power ups away from you and then you spend the rest the rest of the game slowly getting those powers uh, and items back but mm-hmm. from a player perspective you know it was fun it was a thrill you know i just bought this game i plugged it in and it's a thrill to get to be the version the ultimate version of your character um, and to have all these tools at your disposal and it also you don't mind too much when they take it away because you understand that this is this is maybe a little overpowered but you know you have had this fun glimpse of like this is where i'm gonna be if if i keep at this game and i've never yeah. thought of applying that in like a role-playing uh, tabletop game but now i'm kind of intrigued I think like, one thing, I'm going to turn this into a, a Metroid podcast <laughs> for a minute, but one thing that's really fascinating to me about the Metroid Prime example that you brought up is, you know, like video games do this all the time, right? But Metroid Prime does it really well. It takes it away, but then when you collect all those things, you still get more on top of that. So it's like, even though you were this super powerful bounty hunter, lost everything, you end up like in a much um, further place than than even where you started. Yeah. Right? Is that powered up? Yeah, which I just think is like, it's... You know, it's a clever way to do it because it gives you a goal right at the beginning. It's like, I want to get back to where I was. And then you find out that really, no, actually what you wanted to do was get much further than that. Yeah. And, you know, think, I mean, in, in literature too, you know, it's not an uncommon trope that uh, the player starts out on the top or the, the hero starts out uh, at the top and then they have some sort of setback that knocks them all the way down to the bottom. They lose their power. They're kicked out of the royal mm-hmm. palace, whatever it is. And then the actual meat of the movie is was not mm-hmm. that fun exercise of power at the beginning, but it's the much more interesting regaining through effort and perseverance of the powers that were lost. I, I've never done that with an RPG, you know, started the players out in a really high spot and then knocked them down uh, to the bottom and then had them climb back up. But if players were kind of up for that, I think that would be a really interesting tabletop experience. All right. Well, hey, shall we wrap things up? Yeah, let's wrap it up. Okay. Dave, it has been great having you on the show. And you've talked a bit about lore. Can you tell people where they would go to find out a little bit more about lore or to pick up a copy of their own? Uh, Right now, we're currently selling it as a PDF download and as a print book on uh, DriveThruRPG. So if you you go to DriveThruRPG and just type in lore RPG or lore fantasy role-playing game, you'd find the book there. So... Uh, currently, we have the core rules, but the Creature Codex is coming out, and as I said, the Legendarium is is being worked on. Um, so it's slow process, but we're we're getting them out. And um, as you mentioned before, you're going to be at a lot of cons running games of lore. So if people are interested, or if they want to stop by and uh, and say hi, uh, look for lore events at Gen Con Origins, etc. David, I think the final the final thing we need to do here is. Uh, we will invite you to replace the topic we just discussed on our random table of topics with a new one of your choice. So with the understanding that some future guest may get stuck discussing it, uh, do you have a topic or question you want to add to the table? Uh, I do. I was thinking about uh, about it today. Really, how do you use history, medieval history, ancient history, to inform your quest and your gaming uh, in your tabletop? Oh, that's fantastic. So, wow. I mean, it's, you know, there's, whether it's political organizations, daily practices, ley lines, there's so many things you can look at history and the lore uh, of what we have that could just be brought out. How do people use that uh, to create more realism in their games? 
That is a great question. Yeah, it's a really good question. We'll, we'll make sure to add it to the table. Well, thanks, Dave, for coming on. Well, thanks for having me, and I uh, appreciate it. This has been Roll for Topic. Remember, if your players are having fun, you're a great GM.